Before we start the show, do not forget to try out NPR One. It's your go-to app for podcasts and audio stories from public radio and beyond. Get NPR One, O-N-E, on your app store now. Hey, y'all, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup of political news. We'll talk about where things stand after the final debate, what's in store for the next two weeks, and that totally awkward charity dinner Thursday night. Also, we'll hit listener mail and what we just cannot let go this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House in the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So, happy Friday. It has been a week. We have done three episodes this week already, including a big recap of this week's debate. Make sure to catch up on those if you have not yet. Um, as for today... So we're a little over two weeks until Election Day, if you can believe it. I can't believe it. I can believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's a long time coming. It's all right. I'm so... It's all going to be okay. I'm I'm like having these daydreams of the victory dance I do when it's done. And I'm having these nightmares of what happens if it isn't really done on November 8th for some reason. Stop that talk. I think mine looks a little like Carlton from Fresh Prince. That's a good dance. Yeah. That's a good dance. (laughs) So, you know... There's a feeling now, especially post-third debate, that we already kind of know how this story is going to end. Well, I mean, we clearly know at this point, you know, based on the polling, that this is not a close race. Hillary Clinton is winning. Uh, She's not only winning in the national polls, where she's up high single digits, seven to nine points overall on on average. Uh, She's also winning battleground states. And, you know, that's a problem for Donald Trump because... The real big issue here is, you know, Democrats start with a map that's much more favorable. Donald Trump would have to sweep the battleground states. We're talking about he has to win Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Iowa, and Nevada. He needs to win all of them, and he still wouldn't be at 270, the 270 electoral votes needed to win a majority of electoral votes. He would need to pick off one more Democratic state. So is there even really a path for him right now? Well, I mean, look, the path is the fact that he's within striking distance in those toss-up states. He'd have to also, by the way, toss-ups that aren't usually toss-ups. Think about Arizona and Georgia. Those should not be close at all. Should not be close, as well as Utah, where Evan McMullen, uh, the independent candidate who could wind up winning or giving a path for Hillary Clinton to win in Utah. He's doing all those places and pick off a Democratic state like uh, New Hampshire, probably his best option right now, because places like uh, Pennsylvania and Colorado have moved much further apart. New Hampshire, frankly, has moved away from him, too, because of college educated white women in the suburbs. I saw something interesting that before the general election began, the polling was basically the same, that huh. if you if you looked at a poll of like a head to head matchup of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump months and months and months and months ago, before all of this yeah. happened, it was basically the same gap that it is now. So we could have just skipped these last few months. Well, uh, lots of people wish we could have skipped the last few <laughs> oh, months. But what, what do you guys make of two things that that you hear a lot from when it comes to Trump supporters trying to walk through this over the next few weeks? The first of all is the polls don't capture the enthusiasm. The polls don't capture the people who typically don't vote. And the second one is, well, polls are one thing, but, uh, you know, we still have to vote. Polls don't have any uh, effect on who actually shows up and votes on Election Day. But those are the two things you're hearing in terms of how to sort through these poll trends. Aren't the people that are typical Trump supporters some of the folks that are easiest to find by pollsters? Yeah, I think a lot of the Trump supporters are people who, um, you know, they're clearly behind their candidate. They go to these rallies. It's a self-selecting group. They see so much enthusiasm and energy in front of them in a similar way to people like Ron Paul when he would go to a rally mm-hmm. or go to a, you know CPAC or something and you had all this energy and enthusiasm and they couldn't understand how he could lose or Bernie Sanders in the primary and they couldn't understand he's getting all these huge crowds Hillary Clinton wasn't how is it possible that she could win just because you get a big crowd doesn't necessarily mean that that is uh, reflective of the broader numbers of people who are uh, supporting you of course the caveat has to be in place that not everybody has voted yet the lion's share of people will will vote on election day. Some people have voted already with early voting. But if Democrats show up, if groups that are key to Democratic turnout show up, African-Americans, Hispanics, young voters, women, if they show up 
in the numbers that they're saying to pollsters right now that they will, then Hillary Clinton's going to be the next president of the United States. Speaking of Clinton, uh, she's moving into the closing argument phase of her campaign. Tamara, what is she saying now? They have a new ad out today that features Kieser Khan. You will remember he is the gold star dad uh. who spoke at the convention. It was a very powerful speech. Um, and after that, uh, there was a week of Mr. Khan feuding with Donald Trump, yeah. uh, which was not the high point of this campaign, certainly. It was um, sort of like the first point when you saw some people jump off the ship who were Republicans. Yeah. And now they're out with this ad, which is doesn't explicitly talk about that feud, but is absolutely a reminder for voters. Here's a bit. In 2004, my son was stationed in Iraq. He saw a suicide bomber approaching his camp. My son moved forward to stop the bomber. There are close-ups of him touching his son's old uniform hat. He saved everyone in his unit. The flag that was draped over his casket. Only one American soldier died. Zooms in on a picture of his son in uniform. My son was Captain Himayun Khan. He was 27 years old, and he was a Muslim-American. I want to ask Mr. Trump, would my son have a place in your America? I, I had been wondering if um, when Clinton and I approved this message. the Clinton campaign was going to use uh, his account an ad because he was such a powerful speaker. He was such a powerful messenger. And one reason why when Donald Trump attacked him and his family, it hurt Trump so much was because you could not you could not come up in a lab with somebody who was more yes. sympathetic, more appealing yes. than Kizer Khan and the Khan family. This is a man, you know, when he pulled that pocket constitution out uh, on the stage at Philadelphia, that wasn't just a prop. This man literally buys pocket constitutions, carries them with him at all time, hands them out when people come to his house because he deeply loves America. He was just so powerful every time you heard him talk. And, and he was so moving that it was just devastating that Donald Trump was picking this person and this family to attack. The, the closing argument that the Clinton campaign and Hillary Clinton seems to be making is one of bridging the divides, bringing America together. Of course, her her slogan is stronger together. Mm-hmm. But the idea being they're trying to end on this very positive America is better than this. Vote for Hillary Clinton because it's the patriotic choice. Let's send a message about what America really is. That is their closing argument. What about Trump's? What's he saying in these final days? Anybody? Well, that's kind of Trump's problem, right? Because as this race is kind of solidified as a race that Hillary Clinton, looking at the polls, is ahead in by by you know significant margins, Trump's argument has really come down to just attacking Hillary Clinton, saying that you know she's not qualified to be president, saying that she should be in jail. You've seen it on the debate stage. You saw it at the Al Smith dinner, which we're going to talk about in a little yeah. bit. It has just become a visceral anti-Hillary Clinton message. Uh, combined with a message that the election is rigged, that uh, the media is against him, that everybody in the world is against him. And that's not really a message that's going to empower people or excite people who aren't already 100 percent in your camp, which is, you know, less than 40 percent of the population. So that's uh, it's hard to see how Trump kind of expands the base with the message he's focusing on. And his message increasingly has taken on um, some accusations that the system is so rigged that he might choose to not accept the results of the election. You know, just in a speech at a rally in Ohio, he said this. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to make a major announcement today. I would like to promise and pledge to all of my voters and supporters and to all of the people of the United States that I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. So he's like trying to be funny there, but lots of people and experts that know this stuff say this is not the kind of thing to be funny about. And a lot of Republicans, You should not too. be joking about America's peaceful transition of power. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that if he he's continued on this, and we've talked about this in other podcasts, but you know, there's no evidence at all of widespread fraud in the way that he talks about it, and it seems like he's making a joke out of it. Um, he wants to, I don't know, be funny, or and his supporters, you've seen reporting where they are, you know, using really hyperbolic language to describe what could happen to the country if Trump were to lose. And that that's a really dangerous proposition. So also in that same speech, uh, Trump talked about what his rights are as a nominee. Of course, I would accept a clear election result, but I would also reserve my right to contest or file a legal challenge in the case of a questionable result. Right? And always I will follow and abide by all of the rules and traditions of all of the many candidates who have come before me. Always. So that's like the serious part. Yeah. And, you know, he he also referenced 2000 and Al Gore and the recount as to kind of prove a point as to why he could do what he wants to do this year. But Al Gore didn't begin to challenge the election until after Election Day. You know, we have Trump saying these things weeks and a month mention, more before the election. But not to mention, these things are totally different. Yes. I mean, saying that they, that you reserve your right to contest uh is not the same as saying that someone's telling you to concede your right to do so. I mean, the fact of the matter is there are election laws in this country. If a state has a statute that says that if it's within 0.25 percentage points or X number of votes, that's the law. You're allowed to challenge. You're allowed to go for a recount. You know, that that is not saying that, like, the election is going to be rigged and you want to take away my right to uh, contest the vote. That's not what anybody was asking him. It's certainly not what the moderator of the last debate was asking him. It's a totally separate thing and makes him sound like he doesn't understand election law. So sticking with this topic of a rigged election, I went to Wisconsin early this week to talk to Trump supporters about their thoughts on this topic and kind of ask them the question, what they would do if Trump loses. There had been a handful of reports last week uh, with some vocal Trump supporters seeming to suggest violence should Trump lose. So I went to find out the real deal. I talked to well over a dozen people at a Trump rally this Monday in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So uh, before Trump spoke, one of his surrogates on stage was the sheriff of Milwaukee County, David Clark. Uh, and he said, this is not the first time he said this, that on November 8th, it would be time for pitchforks. Lots of folks said that's about violence. I asked someone there in the crowd, as soon as Clark said that, what it meant. No, that just means that's symbolic for it's time for the people to rise up. We're not talking about violence. I know what you guys are going to do. You're going to go back to your shop and you're going to. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not violence. It's about the people rising up and they're being fed up. That doesn't mean violence. It means vote for Donald Trump is what it means. I asked other people whether they support some of the signs that they hold that say that Hillary should be in prison or that she's a devil. When I asked one guy about his prison for Hillary poster, he said this. On one side, we have never Hillary. And on the other side, Hillary for prison. Though I don't really want her to go to prison. I just want her out of the White House. So then why would you have that sign? Well, because that's the slogan that people use. And to put Hillary not in or out of the White House takes up too much space. <laughs> there was this other guy who was selling posters of Hillary like as the devil. So I asked him about that. It has what it has horns, some weird devil eyes. We, we, we have a red face. We have bleeding eyes. Uh, we, we have uh, some fangs. And do you it, think she's the devil? Do I think she's the devil? I think she is an evil person. Yes, I think that. But the devil? Uh, the devil... I could go with that. Yeah, absolutely. As a so sales, you are saying she's the as devil. As a sales guy, I will say Hillary is the devil. That so is said, a As a sales guy. Yeah, exactly. So my entire night there, when I asked folks about this harsh rhetoric, they said, no, it, 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 we're just saying these things. No, everyone that I talked to said there's not going to be violence. They didn't predict violence or condone violence from Trump supporters. And the one word that I heard the most when I asked these Trump supporters how they would feel if Trump lost was disappointed. I feel like... All year, though, there's been an ongoing theme of whether it's Trump or whether it's a surrogate like Clark, they'll say something on the stage. 
And yes. then it's and then there's this cleanup crew of people being like, no, what he really meant, what they really meant was something entirely different to the point where it was like a funny SNL skit of Kellyanne Conway, like interpreting increasingly ridiculous Donald Trump statements. But I feel like, like this happened the other night, too. And this is kind of a, a different tangent. So but yeah, fine. Um, just like Donald Trump saying, I'll keep you in suspense as to whether I'll concede. Yeah. And you had Jeff Sessions and Conway and several other people saying, no, that's not what he said. Like, yeah. No, that's what he said. And I feel like you have to go with what the people say from the stage when they say something that means a specific thing. But I also think that so much of what the Trump campaign has been is this mastery of the stagecraft of yeah. doing politics for TV. And he knows how to say things that get attention. And I think his supporters know that, too. But I think the thing that you can't control, that no one from the podium can control, that Donald Trump can't control, Hillary Clinton can't control, you can't control how... Somebody out there is going to hear your remarks yeah. and how they're going to interpret it. Yes. And and that's the dangerous part. And, and there are some folks that are listening who might be on edge right. for that's God knows what. Right. That's and those are the folks to watch. That's what's out. irresponsible. And I think to Scott's point, you know, as reporters, you hear the principal say something. That person's supposed to mean what they say. They are running for president of the United States. All right. It's time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HBO. Introducing Vice News Tonight, the first news program of its kind to air on HBO, providing an indispensable source of up-to-date news every weeknight at 7.30 p.m. on HBO, or stream it on HBO Now. All right, we are back. So, Tamara, you were on the road this week, as you always seem to be, uh, with Hillary Clinton. We we hear a lot more from Trump supporters. They seem to be the most vocal. Uh, but you have some stuff to say about Clinton supporters. What did you see in here? Yeah, so I feel like there's been a lot of focus on Trump supporters. Yeah. But I wanted to actually really dig deep with some Clinton supporters about why they are excited about this election. What is driving them? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to this house party. Uh, well, it was like <laughs> a Hillary Clinton Five house party. $5 cover. <laughs> it was really, they were in a garage uh-huh. and they were phone banking and they were painting signs to get ready for the Pride Parade in Las Vegas. And at one point, they they had these signs spelling out the word victory. Uh-huh. And they were like, oh, let's let's take a group group exercise. Let's take a picture of us with our victory spelled out. <laughs> but it was it was just like they were they were having fun and and they were thinking about victory. So they've been getting together basically every night, making phone calls, knocking on doors. Uh, One person I met is Kaven Burkhalter. He's 47 years old. And this is basically the first time he's really gotten involved in politics, but he is all in. There'd be times when my partner, he'd be sitting at home and I'd get off of work at five o'clock and all of a sudden take a right turn and go to the Hillary Clinton headquarters and just start and I'd stop him and make 30 calls real fast and he'd text me where are you I'm like you know where and he's like your free job <laughs> and I'd be like yes my free job <laughs> words never exactly heard in uh, Vegas where are you so why do you we know where I am at a Hillary Clinton <laughs> phone, bank. phone bank we just hear and see more stories about Trump supporters than we ever hear and see it seems stories about Hillary Clinton supporters do we know why that is I don't know why I don't entirely know why and then a lot of the stories we hear about hillary clinton is well there's an enthusiasm gap and we've been enthusiasm we've been hearing about an enthusiasm gap since the primary which she won which she won um there are a lot of hillary clinton supporters out there who feel like they just can't get any respect that people are always like saying that there's no enthusiasm and they're like wait wait we are here and we are enthusiastic Please, somebody, listen to us. We have something to say. I'll just say, you know, there's been this narrative about Hillary Clinton that she's so disliked that she's untrustworthy and that, yes, Donald Trump is, too, and worse than her. But he has deep support. 
You know, but so does Hillary Clinton. Absolutely. I mean, this is true. And it was true in the primaries mm-hmm. and people kind of ignored it or didn't want to talk about it because it wasn't as flashy a story necessarily. But, you know, you would see that difference, by the way, in polling if there suddenly had become this change between registered voters and likely voters. When uh, pollsters go to that likely voter model, you should have seen a closing of the gap between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump because supposedly Trump supporters would have so much more enthusiasm. But you haven't seen Trump be able to drive up any kind of margin with likely voters at this point. At this point, Clinton is winning and it's among likely voters, too. That enthusiasm is there for her. Yeah. So I I just want to hear from one more person. Her name is Linda Overby. She's 59 years old. She is a painter. She's in the Painters Union uh, and she's actually gone around and painted portraits and and other things on the walls of every Hillary Clinton headquarters in southern Nevada. But she says, just like Hillary Clinton, she spent her career trying to make it in a man's world. Hmm. I was a very strong person, you know, and uh, so having constantly proved myself as far as strength and stamina, which, you know, I beat them all the time, (laughs) you know, but... But really, you know, I, I, I see similarities in, in every once in a while I'll let myself say the first woman president. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't focus on that because it isn't the main issue. But when, when I let myself think about it, it is a big deal, you know. And I'm really thrilled. That might be the biggest thing that's, by the way, come from the Trump tape that surfaced and these allegations from women. Uh, I think that the idea of a first woman president has always been this idea and that Hillary Clinton has, you know, talked about it in this campaign where she didn't do so in 2008 very much. And it's almost like been kind of papered over as like, yeah, 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 we know, we know. But if she were to win, this is a big moment in American history. You know, Barack Obama being the first African-American elected president was a huge moment in American history. There's going to be a moment on election night where people, if she were to win, that people should be allowed to step back and say, huh, look at that. First woman, that is a big deal in this country. You mentioned the Trump tape. And and I, as I was sort of wrapping up my interview with Linda, I was like, oh, is there anything else that you wanted mm-hmm. to bring up? And, and this is what she said. The stuff with Billy Bush, you know, it does bring up. It's pretty amazing how I, you know, struggled with a lot of things, you know, for that week. About how uh, stuff that I thought, can I put that on Facebook? No, I can't reveal that. I can't reveal this happened to me, you know. And I, it's like, it's, not, it's just going back and rehashing your whole life from five years old for me you know, and how that affected you. Wow. And I feel like one thing that, that we were all talking about before we taped this was was there there was that powerful moment uh, in the third debate when Hillary Clinton was, was talking about how Donald Trump demeans women and attacks women. And she said something like, you know, and I don't think there's a single woman out there who doesn't know what that feels like. And I feel like in between the tape and the allegations and and three hour and a half debates where Donald Trump just basically attacked Hillary Clinton the entire time through kind of feels like maybe that has kind of uh, closed the ranks and kind of generated a lot more support for Hillary Clinton that then maybe existed three or four weeks ago. Just just kind of just having this this ongoing conversation about sexual assault and and what's OK and what's not OK kind of ha- play out in America over the last few weeks. Yeah. So also this week was the annual Alfred E. Smith charity dinner in New York. Um, Before we get to the drama that happened at that dinner, Domenico, tell us what it's all about. You know, the Al Smith dinner is this kind of political tradition. It's been going on. This is the 71st year of the Al Smith dinner. Al Smith was a former governor of New York who ran for president, a progressive, kind of known as a happy warrior. Uh, And But this is usually an event where I don't want to say they put politics aside because the jokes are definitely political. But you're supposed to be somewhat self-deprecating. You're supposed to laugh about yourself as well as poke at someone else, but in the civil way. By the way, it's a fundraiser for Catholic Catholic charities charities and for children. So just keep that in mind as you hear some of these clips. (laughs) So it's supposed to be a night of both nominees doing a very friendly, gracious roast of themselves and the other. Uh, Trump speaks first. He does a few zingers. You know, the president told me to stop whining. But I really have to say, the media 
is even more biased this year than ever before. Ever. You want the proof? Michelle Obama gives a speech, and everyone loves it. It's fantastic. They think she's absolutely great. My wife, Melania, gives the exact same speech. And people get on her case. He's doing good. He's hitting Clinton. Even she had to laugh at this joke. Just before taking the dais, Hillary accidentally bumped into me. And she very civilly said, pardon me. And at this point, get it? Pardon me, emails. She is like, she's laughing. She is laughing. Like, I think she got the joke before most of the people in the room. Yes, it was pretty clever. You know, but there was a moment about halfway through his speech where you could see everything go south. It went off the rails. He stops laughing. The crowd starts booing. It was not pretty. Hillary is so corrupt. She got kicked off the Watergate Commission. How corrupt do you have to be to get kicked off the Watergate Commission? Where's the joke? Being booed by high society and white uh, ties. And Catholics. And now wait for this one. We've learned so much from WikiLeaks. For example, Hillary believes that it's vital to deceive the people by having one public policy and a totally different policy in private. That's okay. I don't know who they're angry at, Hillary. You're right. For example, here she is tonight in public pretending not to hate Catholics. Then you had a room full of Catholics. Boo them. Oh, my goodness. We, we've talked before about roasts gone south on this This podcast. roast became a three-alarm fire. Yeah. It was something. <laughs> it's pretty hard to get booed at a charity. Come on. Yeah, I know. So Clinton went next. She um, had a better read of the room, so she wasn't booed, but she still was hitting him pretty hard. People look at the Statue of Liberty and they see a proud symbol of our history as a nation of immigrants, a beacon of hope for people around the world. Donald looks at the Statue of Liberty and sees a four. Maybe a five if she loses the torch and tablet and changes her hair. You know, come to think of it, you know what would be a good number for a woman? 45. Yeah, and then there was another joke she made about Donald Trump and the debates and his performance. Donald wanted me drug tested before last night's debate. And look, I got to tell you, I am so flattered that Donald thought I used some sort of performance enhancer. (laughs) Now, actually, I did. It's called preparation. This was spicy. Or or sparky, as Tam would say. (laughs) Sparky's okay. But there's a line between sparky and below the belt. And it's just, you got to read the room. You got to know where you're going to go with this. And that, it, when the cringes happen and the boos happen, you know, it's. I just it's feel just like, not... yeah, this is an, another example of there's a line. There's a line for so many different things. And there, the line has just been obliterated. We don't all do year. lines this year. Yeah, no, no lines this year. And it's, I don't know. This is just further proof that this election is destroying comedy yeah like it's even we can't have fun anymore we just can't have good clean no more nice things when you're sitting with like the cardinal of new york (laughs) between you like which he said was the iciest place in america (laughs) (laughs) um i you know she did have one really good joke that i think everybody listening to this podcast can appreciate where she said you know she's as a politician really good at uh telling people what they want to hear and here's exactly what you want to hear this election will be over very, very soon. Remember that. Remember that. This reminds us of Mitt Romney. So four years ago, Mitt Romney is running against Barack Obama. They had, you know, a tough debate. And then they go to this Al Smith dinner. And he was charming and self-deprecating. And it's, it's like um, we're having major nostalgia in America for Mitt Romney. You know, speaking of nostalgia... 
a letter has been making the rounds online this week. Uh, George H.W. Bush's letter to Bill Clinton when Bush gave up the presidency to Bill. I think it's really telling that this letter uh, trended this week, and this was like the fourth or fifth time this year yeah. that this letter has trended. Right. Because it just it just speaks to a different mood, a different time. I mean, in 1992, Bill Clinton trounced George H.W. Bush. It was it was a historic beatdown in terms of the percentage of the vote that a sitting president got. But he leaves this letter on the desk in the Oval Office uh, on inauguration day. So, you know, he's out of office now. Bill Clinton is coming into office. And uh, I guess I'll just read the letter because it's not that long. Yeah. January 20th, 1993. Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that, too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. And this is where it kind of becomes really, uh, I think, meaningful. There will be very tough times made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I'm rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. Wow. Your success is our success. Yeah. Is it not a feeling that seems very common? Don't hear that this year. Yeah. All right. It's time for a quick break. We'll be right back. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Okay, we're back. Time for a few of your questions. Scott had to duck out for a bit to uh, handle some stuff in the newsroom. But the three of us, this Motley crew, will try to answer your questions as best we can. We also will have a weekly listener mail episode, which will be out Monday morning, Monday mail. Reminder that you can email your questions to us, record your voice in a question to us as a voice memo to nprpolitics at npr.org. First question today comes from Steve. He writes, quote, Hey, NPR Politics team, my name is Steve, and I am a Brit married to an American living in Saudi Arabia. Um, we are planning on holding an Election Day breakfast on November 9th for the American families in our community to watch the election results come in live. I need your help planning it. What time do the polls close? What time do you predict the winner will be announced? Keep up the great work. Steve. Thank you, Steve. Domenico knows this. Well... Let me whip out my poll closing times chart. (laughs) Literally, it says poll closing times at the top. Anyway, um, we are the first polls close at 7 p.m. Eastern time here on the East Coast. Uh, You have five states for a total of 44 electoral votes. They include Indiana, Kentucky, South Carolina, Vermont, and Virginia. Virginia being a key there. You know that if Virginia goes one direction or another, it should tell you something about how the rest of the night will go. By 8 o'clock or within that 8 o'clock hour, you're going to have lots of states, like we said, that are going to tell us where this thing is going. North Carolina, Ohio, Florida, Georgia, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania. If we know the winner in those places... You're going to know who the next president is. And we should explain that we won't have, you know, the secretaries of state will not give us 100 percent of precincts reporting by the end of that hour, for instance. But uh, news organizations do exit polling. And so some combination of the results that are in looking at the counties that they come from mixed with the exit polling, uh, we'll start getting calls on states pretty quickly, depending on how close it is. And Domenico, like at what time of day do you think that they definitely want to make sure that their guests are there because they don't they don't want to start the party too late and like the whole thing could be called. Yeah, I think it's important that, you know, as soon as those polls start to close and we've got our countdown clock going down to that seven o'clock poll closing time, you want to have your uh, you want to have your smartphones ready for those alerts from NPR and other news organizations. You know, I will address one thing that I think is really interesting. You're going to see with zero percent in. Yeah. <laughs> Calling this state. Calling this state. goes to it. whoever. And the reason that happens is because we do have mass exit polling in this country uh, where when people are going 
when people are coming out of the polling booths, uh, every fourth person is asked how they voted. Uh, some people choose to do it. Some people don't. But you get a really, really big polling sample with a really small margin of error uh, that gets weighted and matched and all that fun uh, statistical stuff that gives you a pretty good idea. So if you have somebody with like a 15 point lead in the exit poll in a state, when that poll closes, they know who's going to win that state. And that's why the people on all those election desks at the network are able to make that call to pretty good scientific certainty. Okay. So this is not really a question, but a dispatch from Chelsea in North Carolina. She wrote us yesterday and said, Hey, guys, just an update from Chapel Hill, where early voting has started today. There has been a two to four hour wait in my voting location this morning. The makeshift parking lot is full. People can barely pass each other to get out of the area. Everyone I saw was courteous and patient. I spoke to the volunteers, and they said that this kind of turnout was most unexpected. I will try again tomorrow since I had my one-year-old with me. But it seems that enthusiasm is running deep no matter what side you're on. Thanks, Chelsea. All right, and so, Tamara, we actually have some data from North Carolina on early voting already, right? Yeah, so this comes from Dr. Michael Bitzer. He's a political science professor in North Carolina. He goes by Bowtie Politics on Twitter. And and he says that in-person early voting, This we've only had one day of it, uh-huh. uh, but it was actually down slightly from 2012, just barely. And But here's some interesting numbers. Uh, He says that the party registration for this year's first day of in-person early voting was 53 percent registered Democrats, 24 percent registered Republicans and 23 percent registered unaffiliated. So um, that is a lot of Democrats. Uh, And and then in terms of the racial breakdown, because as we talk about a lot, demographics are often destiny in these elections. Uh, It is about 55 percent female. 44% male. Women tend to be more democratic than men. Uh, And also it was about a third non-white. So here's what's really interesting about this. I'll see your professor and raise you another professor, Mike (laughs) McDonald at the University of Florida, who runs uh, the election project. He's at Elect Project. Uh, He's sort of the turnout expert in the country. And he said that 1.4 million people have voted already. And the big picture thing here is that Democrats are outpacing uh, Barack Obama's pace in 2012 when it comes to early voting in Florida, North Carolina, and Virginia. States that matter. States that do matter. Donald Trump, on the other hand, is doing better than Mitt Romney did at this point in Iowa and Ohio, which is interesting because in all of those places, those respective people lead. Um, And what was really fascinating, after the first debate, there was a spike in requests from women in Georgia and North Carolina. So Tam mentioned- To get absentee ballots. Right. And Tam mentioned the split. It was even higher than that in the week before, where it was almost 60% women who were requesting those absentee ballots in those two states. Really bad sign for Donald Trump, given especially the fact that he has to win all of those states. He can't lose one of them. Yeah. So- Next question today is a recording from Olga in Moscow. Hey there. She's a reporter for Latvia Public Television. Huh. She lives and works in Moscow. Hi, guys. My name is Olga, and I'm Moscow correspondent for Latvia's public television. So originally, I'm from Riga. I wanted to tell you about something that maybe you haven't heard about or your listeners at least are not aware of is that here in Moscow, at least, but I'm sure in the rest of Russia as well, if one follows the official media that are state-controlled, one might think that the presidential uh, race is actually uh, happening somewhere here in Russia because it takes up so much airtime of these channels and newspapers and uh, radio stations. And, of course, according to um, state channels, Uh, Hillary Clinton is the most evil, most unreliable, craziest person on the face of the planet and probably the sickest person. And um, Donald Trump is like the sanest, well, most logical uh, creature on the face of the earth. Um, That's that's my statement. Um, I also have a question. During the last debate, I noticed that Donald Trump mentioned that uh, many things were bigly. (laughs) Uh, It's coming from the word big. And this is something that if I used uh, during my English language classes in high school, I would not get such a great mark, I think. I I was wondering if 
Donald Trump uh, uses this on purpose, first of all, is this, is, or, or is this the way he spoke always? Anyway, warm greetings from Moscow, and, uh, well, keep up the good work. Your guys are amazing. Bye. Aww. One, just got to say, it's so nice to know that we have listeners and support all across the world. That's awesome. It's been it amazing. my day. <laughs> um, and thank you to everyone that takes the time to record their voices and send it to us. We love to hear what you guys sound like. And, Olga, thank you for the dispatch. Um, the you know what it's like watching what state like tv there. in russia it's amazing this election's over there first of all she sounds like a little bit frustrated reporter who would like to be able to get to talk about how taxes have increased or lowered in riga you know the capital of latvia as opposed to having to watch all this american news that has nothing to do with what's happening in their country <laughs> but to clarify it is not bigly it's only a creation of the way donald trump talks that there's become this confusion. He is saying two words there, big league, but, big league. But hold on. Here's here's the rub. So I was talking with the folks at Dictionary.com the night of the debate because, yeah. You were talking with the folks at Dictionary.com? They were emailing me data on wow. what was trending with them. I didn't think like them. actual people ran. They ha- it's, it's, they're actually pretty great. Wow. So they kept tabs on what words people searched for during the debate. And first and foremost, they said <laughs> both big league and bigly are words. Bigly is an actual word. B I G L Y. What does bigly it's an mean? Adverb. Bigly, Very I have big. it up here right now. No, it means large, as in size, height, yeah. width, or amount. Yeah. So if Trump was saying big league or bigly, both would be correct. He's trying to say big league. But what's interesting is that the night of the debate, 64% of searchers at dictionary.com looked up bigly, B I G L Y. Of course, that's they what it sounds like. Big sounds like he's saying that. Only 0.04% looked up the words big league. Because it doesn't sound like he's saying big league. You literally have to like go back and re-listen and to hear the g in there because he's saying big league. And by the way, if I can Queens translate for a second, because that's where Are, Trump is from. Yeah. You're a Queens translator in the room. Um, it is sort of this expression. It's an old expression, but having to do really with baseball, it's the idea that like, like, major like the big leagues. Okay. Yeah, you know, like we're big gonna, league chew. Yeah, and that it's like, oh, that's a that's just like a AAA way of acting is more of a minor because AAA is the minor leagues, yes. right? That like this is man, he's that guy's really big league. He's he's really made it. It's not something I've heard like in the last twenty years, but you know. I prefer huge. huge. I miss that. That's kind of falling out of favor. Anyway, all right, one more quick break and then can't let it go. Before we get back to the show, quick plug. Another podcast we think you will love is Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. It is your guide to pop culture. Jesse interviews artists and writers and actors about their work and their lives. Recent guests include the creator of Veep, Hassan Minaj of The Daily Show, and actress Rashida Jones. You can find Bullseye now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. All right, all four of us are back. Scott made it back in. Time for Can't Let It Go. This is how we end the show every single week. We talk about something we cannot let go, politics or otherwise. Scott, what can you not let go this week? Trump book reports. Do tell. All right, so this is a thing that happened on Twitter uh, after the debate. It all started when someone named Antonio French tweeted this about Trump talking about foreign policy. He said, Trump's foreign policy answers sound like a book report from a teenager who hasn't read the book. Oh, the grapes. They had so much wrath. So that inspired (laughs) people to start writing actual Trump-style book reports. Uh, And I'm going to read several of them because they were very funny. Do that. Uh, When District 12 sends its people, they're not sending their best. Katniss Everdeen, (laughs) what a nasty woman. (laughs) This is from uh, one of my favorite accounts on Twitter, Zoo with Roy. You're telling me that Gatsby is great? Wrong. Terrible driver. Weird parties. No, he's not great. Trust me, folks. And then this last one was kind of in the style of like somebody ad-libbing, not having no idea what the book's about, that, yeah. that the original tweet was. Let me tell you about Les Miserables. He was a good man, great man, Les, such a man. He became miserable <laughs> thanks to Hillary. <laughs> so, okay. Do you want one more? Yeah. Juliet, such a nasty woman. She made Romeo kill himself. And believe me, he could have done better. Look at her. Oh. <laughs> okay. Domenico. Well- You know, I think we need a little bit of uh, levity. And I think some of us are forgetting that Halloween is coming up pretty soon. Uh, What are you going to be? I have no idea. I don't really dress up. I'm going to be Ron Elvin. 
Okay, that's good. <laughs> but this is for the kids. <laughs> I'm a kid at heart. And uh, I, well, that's mostly because you like candy. Uh, so anyway, handfuls of candy. This guy. Anyway, uh, the, <laughs> that was like that's my mo. The great thing, the great thing that I saw this week was a survey that showed that for the first time. Superhero costumes have surpassed princesses for most popular costume with girls. And I just think, as the father of a young daughter, I think this is a great change. Yeah. And this is a very good thing. And uh, I, for one, welcome this big big league uh, <laughs> because, you know, my, my wife has always hated princess costumes. Uh-huh. And when we had a daughter, she just refused to let anybody, you know, have princess stuff or whatever around because you know it was about empowerment and yes my daughter still likes frozen yeah so, so your daughter's going stuff. as a princess she's this going year, right? as Pinkie Pie from My Little Ponies but whatever she still gets rough and tumble and dirty and I think this is a good change you've been accused of, you've been accused of being a brony before on this podcast when you brought up actually, My Little Ponies I actually think you were accused of being the brony because people confused <laughs> yes. you for me I was, I was like what what is happening yeah but anyway. There's nothing wrong with being a brony. Nothing wrong. Yeah. No, nothing's wrong with being a brony. <laughs> I don't know. Says someone who's not a brony, but like it's totally cool if you are. It okay. is totally cool. Okay. To all of our brony listeners, we support and affirm you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's my that's my can't let it go. I think it's a good thing for little girls. Yes, Tamara. So my mother-in-law is visiting from California, and she brought some reading material: the California Voter Guide, which <laughs> I know. Get this. 221 pages. It's like a small uh, phone book. Have you read it? No, of course not. I'm not voting in California. Before you all groan, internally there will be a 200-page briefing book of this election that is coming out <laughs> that will uh, be worth every piece of data in it. So just so you know. I don't know about California, but I know there's a thing every year there. Yeah, Tam- well, so- Tamara, both you and I covered Sacramento at different points, and I feel like the 200-page California Voter Guide for all the propositions is just bringing back like flashbacks right now yeah, for yeah. me. Like, Ugh. So this year, California has 17 propositions on the ballot. Huh. 17, which is... Which is that is, a normal year or high or low? That is high. Okay. I mean, there, there are always a lot, but this is even a lot for California. And they are... Totally random, all different things from plastic bags to the death penalty. So this woman, Kim Alexander from the California Voter Foundation, every election writes a song, the proposition song. Oh, oh we're having an election. November, <laughs> it's the day. There's 17 propositions. Come vote and have your say. Prop 51's the first one. Nine billion in school bonds. 52 deals with state hospital fees and Medi-Cal matching funds. I love the proposition song. Where do they it. run this? Like, is it in ads on TV and stuff? No, no, no. This is like a, this is an education thing. This so it's is, on YouTube. The, yeah, it's on yeah. YouTube. It's to get people excited about the election. Do you Sounds think it's like, working? And remember what the heck they're voting on. Yeah, right. because there are so many different propositions. Prop 60 is about safe sex, and if we think there ought to be requirements for participants in the adult film industry. <laughs> Come on, this is gold. It's a proposition song. You should all be singing along, cause the ballot's too darn long. They bring a bunch of people in. It's like it's like we are the world of California policy people, <laughs> just like all gathering in. Like is Arnold there? Yeah. Do they do like? Oh my uh, goodness! She was threatening to do a sea shanty this year because the ballot was so long. But alas, it's the same same basic song as every year. It's a nice effort. I mean, for the fact that most people go into the voting booth pretty blind, and you have to read all the stuff that's there for your proposition. I mean, it's really really difficult for a lot of people. I mean, even just trying to unwind the legal language of it to try to synthesize what's important. For for us to even know, it's a, it's a tough task. They should so like, kudos to them. make this a little bigger. Like, I could totally see them getting some California rappers of note involved. Like, get E40 on this track next year. That could be fun. Too bad Tupac's dead. Ooh. Is he, though? <laughs> Tupac's He's <alive>. in Cuba. <laughs> mm. Sam? <laughs> yes. Um, so I mentioned briefly after the debate in our debate recap episode that after Trump called Clinton a nasty woman in that debate, it brought to mind, for me at least, the Janet Jackson song, 
Nasty. Mm-hmm. Turns out the rest of the internet thought that too. So Nasty is from Janet Jackson's breakthrough 1986 album, Control. After Trump said what he said, there were all these memes and gifs and mashups of Hillary Clinton and Janet and the song. So I wrote about it this week. And when writing my piece about how this all happened, I realized that Trump, um, ironically, in making Nasty the song and Control the album resurface, kind of reintroduced America to a great moment in pop feminism. So Control was Janet's first album that she did uh, kind of under her own volition. She had done two albums before that, but she was under the thumb of her father, Joe Jackson. With Control, she sought freedom and made the album she wanted to make, so much so that the opening monologue from that album sounds like this. This is a story about Control. My Control. Control of what I say, control of what I do. So 80s. I know, right? And this time I'm gonna do it my way. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. It goes on. So Donald Trump, by calling Hillary Clinton a nasty woman, made us all go back and look at one of America's great moments in pop feminism. So interesting to me. Can we hear nasty, though? Let's hear nasty, too. So this song is all about Janet Jackson saying, I'm tired of these nasty boys being rude to me. I make my own decisions in my in my love life. I do what I want to do. The whole thing is about female empowerment. That's right. Let me tell it. Nasty. Nasty boys. So was this period peak Jackson family music, the mid-80s, or do you think that the the family as a whole was a peak when the Jackson 5 was doing it? Because you had her doing this, you had Michael kind of at the top of his game, a few years past Thriller. Yes. I think this is the prime time. I think Michael's trend line was going down by the 90s, but Janet was still up in the 90s for a long time. Because she had her self-titled album, which had That's the Way Love Goes. She had the Velvet Rope after that. So she still rode the 90s very well. The two of them became the breakout stars. Yeah. After the family stuff yeah. in the 80s. Totally. Sorry, Tito. Sorry, Jermaine. Sorry, LaToya. Oh, LaToya. The song is so good. Also, for those that love to watch music videos, the music video for one of the tracks on this album, The Pleasure Principle, has the best choreography you'll ever see in a music video ever. That's all. Sorry, Beyonce. <laughs> it's such a good song. All right, this nasty boy says it's time to wrap. <laughs> our usual episode of Listener Mail will be up Monday morning, and then we'll start our daily episodes through the election. That means we'll have a new episode Monday evening that will cover the day's news, and we'll do that every day, every single weekday until after the election. Until then, you know where to find us. We are on your radio. We're on the NPR One app. We are at NPR.org. You can email us, too, at NPRpolitics at NPR.org. And a special thank you to those of you who email us to say you like the show. Tell us to hang in there. And a special, special shout-out to Kiko in Japan, who sent us a care package of candies and tea from Japan this week. It was so awesome. The cheese puffs. Made Love my week. the cheese puffs. Did you guys so eat it all before it. I got yes, back we in the did. Oh, Those cheese yes, puffs we were gone. We could have waited for 20 you. minutes after we opened it. <laughs> all right. I'm there Sam were no Sa- gummies anyway. Oh, okay. Well, then it's fine. <laughs> There's still some candy left. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House in the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 